All right. We are in, as you know, we're in a series entitled Kingdom Come, Working Through the Book of Revelation. And we've said, just as a quick summary, over the last couple of weeks, as we've been in the book of Revelation, we have said kind of loosely that the book of Revelation is a revealing, or an apocalypse, that word apocalypse means to unveil, it means to unmask, that's what the Greek directly translates to. So we've said that the book of Revelations is an unmasking or an unveiling of the world as it is. The book of Revelation is helping us see the world now through God's eyes. It's not trying to predict the future. It's trying to instruct the church in the moment in which it finds itself, living a life of tension in an empire. Now, for the early churches who first received this letter, it was Rome. That was the empire in which they were trying to navigate life there. And life in Rome was deeply complicated because life in Rome was deeply religious. Political life was religious. Economic life was religious. Civil life was religious. And so these churches had this very difficult set of questions to answer. How do we participate in Rome when it feels like such a compromise of our worship of Jesus? The very coins that they would use said, Caesar is Lord, but the very basic theological affirmation of the early churches was, Jesus is Lord. So even using the money of early Rome felt like some kind of compromise of their ethics, of their faith, of their worship. And so this letter, the book of Revelations, comes as a way of speaking to the world as it is, the complexities, the complications, the tensions, the struggles of life in empire. And on one hand, it challenges the way that we often give allegiance to empire, the way that we often worship something other than Jesus, and then it does that by calling us back to worship Jesus, to center our life on Jesus, who is the shepherd king, the one who is revealed on the cross, who rules in love. The book begins with these seven letters. And uh, on Thursday, I was with the house church leaders, and one of our house church leaders, a guy named Austin, said, he was like, you promised so much juicy stuff about Revelation, and now we're just in these letters to the churches. Like, what happened? And that's sort of true, except today's letter is very juicy. But these letters set the context, right? They kind of like lay the groundwork for what's happening in the book of Revelation, which is written to churches. Just these simple, small churches who are wrestling with this question of how do you live in Rome? How do you witness in Rome? You could maybe name the tension as it's a tension between witness and accommodation. Witness being we tell a story about Jesus with our lives, with our activities, with our words, with our principles. We're trying to tell a story about Jesus, but there is this constant tension or pressure to accommodate to the world as it is. Now, life in Rome at this moment, we've talked about, was not full of persecution, This is not an era of of heavy persecution. There's different moments in the church history where there was persecution. But most historians agree that this moment in Roman history is not marked by persecution, which is fascinating because then what it means is there's a different kind of pressure on the early churches. In fact, when we see persecution in the early church, it actually tends to be a really good thing for the church. 
counterintuitive, but it tends to force people into witness, to say, yeah, we really believe this, and so we're going to live into this story or this message. But what we find in this moment of Rome is that it's less like persecution, though there could be localized outbursts of persecution, but it's more like a pressure. A pressure to compromise faithful witness to fit in, to participate in economic lives, to live normally. Instead of being persecuted, the early church is pressured to accommodate. And maybe even pressured is not even the right word. I think it feels more like almost pulled, like how the way gravity works on us, like that we are pulled into a way of life. We're pulled into an orbit. And it's so normal and it's so regular that I don't think the early church even realized what was happening all the time, that there is just like a gravitational pull to life in Rome, that it's the same way that it would be life today, that you just live in a city and you just are accustomed to these kind of cultures and norms and values and habits. It's what you grew up with. It's the way that you've lived. It's the imagination that you've always had. And so it's more like a gravity pulls you into participation in a way of life. And you don't really feel it until you try to test it. In the same way that we don't really feel gravity until we try to test gravity. We don't really feel empire until we try to test empire. And then all of a sudden, well, like gravity, we really feel it. That's sort of the dynamic in today's letter which is a letter to a church in Thyatira. And just for a little bit of context, Thyatira was a small frontier town for most of its history. It probably began as a military outpost because it's kind of on the outskirts of Rome, and so it would have acted as like a block to other foreign invaders. But around the time of the book of Revelation, it begins to experience a boom because it becomes an important part of a trade route. So all of a sudden, new money begins to flow into the town. New people begin to flow into the town. It starts to experience like a genuine kind of like economic revival as all of a sudden there's this new influx of wealth. It might feel uh, not totally dissimilar to what it feels like living in Salt Lake City. Where you're like, for the most part of the time that I was living here, people were like, yeah, nobody wants to live there. And now it's like the fastest growing state in the United States. Right? All of a sudden, you're experiencing this massive boom because of new wealth and new trade opportunities and new economic openings. The problem, though, is that if you wanted to participate in that economic boom, you had to be involved with what were called trade guilds. And trade guilds, it kind of sounds like a union, not a union. Think more like a monopoly or a cartel. Trade guilds controlled all parts of operations, from production all the way to the end of distribution. That if you wanted to participate in making money, you wanted to participate in the trade, you wanted to participate in what was growing in this city, then you had to be a part of a trade guild. But as we have said over the last couple of weeks, Roman life is deeply religious, and so, so also were trade guilds. Part of the festivities of a trade guild would be offering sacrifices to Apollo, eating the meat that was then sacrificed to Apollo, celebrating and worshiping and gathering around the gods of the city or the, like their specific kind of economics or Apollo more generally. And then that feels strange to us because that's like not a temptation that we have. But again, in the context of the moment, the church 
faces these very difficult sets of questions around that tension. What do you do if, like, the the primary way to make money in your city involves worship to a false god. What do you do? Do you participate in that trade guild? Do you go to work? Do you go to the festivities? Do you eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols? Paul will say in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians that he doesn't believe meat sacrificed to idols has any like supernatural power. He even gives permission to do it there. But all of a sudden, it's so connected to like economic life that are you accommodating? to this empire and this false religion if you participate? Are you giving in? So that's the question that's on the surface for this little church. And this is what John in Revelation says to them. He says this in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and your faithfulness, your service and your endurance. I also know that the works you have done most recently, are even greater than those you did at first. This is really high praise for a church in Revelation. Your love and your works are known, they're awesome, they're good, and they are growing, which is very interesting in light of what comes next. In verse 20, John writes this, But I have this against you. You put up with that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. You allow her to teach and to mislead my servants into committing sexual immorality, and eating food sacrificed to idols. So a lot to deconstruct right there. John writes that they are putting up with someone named Jezebel. Unlikely that in this early church there is a woman named Jezebel. The reason I know that is because Jezebel is a very, very, very famous Old Testament queen. And her name sort of becomes like a byword for the people of Israel. Kind of like Benedict Arnold does for us today. Like if you say that name, you're like, oh, traitor. In the same kind of way, if you were to reference Jezebel, which other moments in Scripture does, you know that you're referencing something bad. Like something nefarious is happening when Jezebel shows up, when you accuse someone of being Jezebel. And specifically, it normally relates to the worship of false gods. Because in the Old Testament story, Jezebel and her husband Ahab lead Israel away from the worship of Israel's true God, Yahweh, and into the worship of false gods. And it becomes kind of an intense series of events, an intense set of stories around this like leading into false worship. So much so that it takes on yeah, this mythic kind of byword quality. And so that gives us a sense of the issue that's happening in this story. That someone or some group of people is like Jezebel in the church. They are advocating for this little church to participate in religious life of Rome. That someone within the little church, someone who is a participant in this little church, is advocating for them to go to the festivals, to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, to live life in accommodation with Rome. We know that it's someone within the church, in part because Jezebel was within Israel, but also because this person claims to be a prophet, and it will later go on to say, with deep secrets. So the, the tension here is that someone or something or some group in the church is encouraging the church to mix, maybe even unknowingly, their civic, economic, religion with Jesus. 
encouraging them to enmesh their faith in their culture, saying that any participation in the two is fine. Like, it's totally okay to do all of these things together. And it uses this really kind of intense sexual language to describe it. And that may mean that there was actual, like, sexual immorality happening in the early church. That's totally possible. But biblical writers love to use sexual language or adultery language to describe idolatry in Israel. And there's two reasons for this. One, because it evokes the kind of relational dynamic that people of God are supposed to have with God. There is something relational here. It's not like a contract between two people. It's not some kind of weird, distance, religious event. But it's something deeply relational, deeply marital even. But I think the second reason that it often uses such intense sexual language is because it's trying to do what apocalypses always do, which is reveal something. Apocalypse, again, is revealing or unmasking or unveiling something. And so in the use of this weird, strange, kind of intense language, it is pulling back the layers and revealing it for what it is, that your regular accommodation to Rome is actually deeply problematic. That it's even like cheating on your spouse to participate in these festivals, that just giving allegiance so haphazardly without question, without concern, without double-checking your sources is like adultery, that it's something deeper than just a civic action. It's a relational action. It's a sexual action. There's something more under the surface here than meets the eyes. This kind of language pulls back the layers and reveals what is actually happening. And I think that is important for the early church, but also for us, because when our faith becomes so enmeshed that we don't know it, we don't question the practices around us. We don't question the way that we live. We don't question the allegiances that we hold. It's like gravity. We don't feel its pull until we test it. To be a part of Roman economics, you would just do guild life. I don't think you would even think twice about it. It's like us today. We don't think twice about working a nine-to-five, putting your money in a bank, buying a house, retiring at 66. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but they are just normal. And it's like if someone looked at those things and said, hey, what if you colored them in almost sexual language to reveal and make you question that kind of habit, that kind of practice, where your money goes, where you spend your time and your energy. It reveals something and pulls back the question. So the tricky thing about life in Rome or life in an empire or life in idolatry is that we rarely question it because it feels so normal. So we need something that that challenges it, that reveals it, that makes it seem different than it is. That's exactly what John says will happen. In verse 20, John writes this. He says, I've given Jezebel time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Now, the language here is really fascinating. Um, For all the Greek scholars in the room, you'll know, the text does not say suffering. It just says bed. Now, I think that's very interesting. If you read more literal translations, like the NRSV, it won't have bed of suffering. It'll just say, cast her on a bed. 
And that's all the word is there, just bed. And the reason I think that's very interesting is because I think that the author John is being clever, or Jesus through John is being clever in trying to reveal something. Because all throughout this text, they've used this intensely sexual language to describe the actions of this group or this person named Jezebel, to describe the complicity of the church. And here, John continues that metaphor to describe the outcome of the action. Sort of like saying, you will lie in the bed that you made. You will lie in the bed that you made. In ethics, and sometimes I think in child psychology, there's this concept of intrinsic versus extrinsic outcomes. Extrinsic outcomes or extrinsic consequences are consequences or outcomes that come disconnected from an action that we take. So, for example, in the law, if you speed, you might get pulled over and you might get a ticket. Now, getting a ticket is probably the right thing to do if you've been speeding, but the consequence, a ticket, has nothing to do in terms of driving. It's not like your car is taken away. It's not like someone drives fast around you. The consequence of that action is extrinsic to the action. It's different then. It's like if I was, well, you get, you get the idea. The other kinds of actions are intrinsic. And intrinsic actions or outcomes are when the outcome of a decision is connected to the decision. So, for example, if I was to put my hand on a hot stove, the outcome is connected to the action. The consequence is connected to the action. I feel the pain of putting my hand on a hot stove. Or if I lied to you and you stopped trusting me, the consequence of the decisions that I made are intrinsic to the actions that I took. I lied, so you don't trust me. I touched the stove, so my hand is now burnt. They are connected to it. Now, intrinsic actions and intrinsic consequences, they serve an important purpose. Like a law, they are boundaries around our lives. Where they protect us from doing certain things that we shouldn't do or protect other people from our actions. But intrinsic outcomes or intrinsic consequences, they don't change things in our hearts. A law doesn't change the way I feel. A law doesn't change how I love. It doesn't change how I live. It doesn't change my beliefs about the world. It boundaries me, which is important, but fills a different function. But intrinsic outcomes create space for reflection, for true change. If I touch a stove and it's really hot, I now have to reflect upon the decisions that I just made. If I test gravity and gravity wins, I have to, you know, deal with and reflect upon the actions that I have made. If you read the Bible, throughout it, most of the consequences that Israel or the church or the people of God face are intrinsic. Israel wants a king, for example, and God says, I'm going to give you a king, but guess what the consequences of that decision are going to be? Oh, you're going to have a king, and he's going to do what kings always do. Israel says, I want to be like the rest of the nations. I want to live like the other nations. And God says, fine, that's totally fine. You can be like the nations, but the consequence to that decision will be you get to be like the rest of the nations, which means you'll be treated like the rest of the nations. You'll operate like the rest of the nations. Your people will be exploited, taken advantage of. You'll go to war like the rest of the nations. The consequences to those decisions are built into the actions. They are one and the same. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann would say, 
according to the Israelite understanding, guilt and punishment are almost always the same event. And I think that's what's happening in this text. God lets the church do whatever the church wants in this moment. He lets Jezebel do what she wants, lets the church do what they want. God lets us do what we want, pursue what we want, and get what we want. And that in and of itself is the consequence. And the result is a revelation of what it is that we want. It unmasks our desires and shows them for what they are. That we may look like our lives are covered in a religious veneer, which is what's happening in Thyatira. He says, your works are exceeding. Even your loves are exceeding. But the problem is at the very bottom of everything, you hide some other love, some other desire. And so have at it. Go for it. And when you get it, it's going to reveal what it is that you truly want, what it is that you truly desire, which isn't me, which isn't Jesus, it's something else. In this way, it unmasks our desires, it shows them for what they are, but not to shame, not to judge, but to create space for truth and repentance or healing. Twice in this chapter, verse 22 and verse 23, God says specifically the reason that this is happening is to create space for repentance. God is not interested in retribution or revenge. God is only ever interested in reconciliation. Like a parent who allows something to happen so that we might reflect deeply and learn from the actions we took, God is only ever interested in reconciliation, in healing, and in wholeness. Not shame, not revenge, not retribution. But that requires truth. It requires being confronted by the reality of our own desires, and that is not easy, which is why I think most translations move that to bed of suffering, because that is implied that the bed will be difficult to lay in. But not because God made it difficult, but because our own decisions have done so. Because when our desires are truly revealed, well, the truth is difficult to face. There's this uh, 1970s-ish Russian film um, called The Stalker, which I don't expect you to have seen. Uh, <laughs> I like said that reference like as though you would know it. Like, uh, I only know it because somebody told me about it. But it's a fascinating movie because there's, there's these three primary characters in the movie. There's the one character called the stalker, who is this person who's hired to take a professor and a writer, which is like the basis of all good Russian uh, movies and literature, just these three characters, unnamed, except by their vocations. Uh, and the stalker is, is hired to take the writer and the professor into this like kind of abandoned place. And in the middle of this abandoned place is a room. And the premise behind this room, or the promise behind this room, is that if you enter the room, it will give you what you truly desire. So a lot of the movie is just the stalker leading these people to the room, but when they finally get to the room, and they have an opportunity to enter into the room, neither the professor or the writer are ever able to enter into the room. 
Because the fear is, what happens if you enter the room and your true desires are manifested and they are not what you've said they are? They're not what you even believed they are. They're not the story that you have declared to the world about your life, about your intentions, about your practice. The story is that the professor and the writer can't enter the room because they're afraid of what might be revealed about their hearts. We have become very good in the church at hiding our true desires underneath our religion. Very good at hiding our true wants, our true hopes, our true longings underneath the person of Jesus and saying, oh yeah, yeah, it's still Christian. But it looks just like Rome. It looks just like America. I think this is what the text means when God says to the people in verse 23, all the church will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, that the truth will come out. And it's meant to heal, and it's meant to bring us home, and it is meant to raise us into health and to wholeness, but it is hard to confront the truth. To be honest, it feels like hell. Because it is without Jesus. The deep revelation of our own hearts. So what do we do with that? If it requires some kind of revelation for us to really begin to diagnose our true desires, what do we do? If it is so normalized, so enmeshed, how do we discover our true wants? Well, if our actions and our outcomes are intrinsic, if they're connected to one another, then we can look at our practices. In verse 22 and 26, this is actually the language that the CEB translation of Scripture uses, which is why I put it up on the screen. In verse 22, it says, change their hearts from following her practices. And in verse 26, to those who emerge victorious, keeping mine or God's practices until the end. Practices have this dual effect. They reveal, but they also shape our desires. They reveal and also shape our desires. They reveal our desires because in one sense, you can talk all you want to about how much you love to work out, but if you don't work out, you don't love working out. Or you can talk all you want, this is me, I can talk all I want about how much I love healthy food, but the truth is I only eat pizza, so what do I really love? What I actually love, to my wife's deep chagrin. Right? Our practices reveal our heart. But they also shape it. They also form it. They also give life to it and curate our heart. And this can go in any number of directions, that we can curate practices that press us into any number of directions, which is why in this text it's both towards empire and towards God that you can curate cultivate, live into practices that reveal and shape your heart in any number of directions. And so, Missio, the question for us is what do your practices reveal about your hearts and your desires? If our actions and our outcomes are connected, what does it reveal about what we truly desire, about what we truly love? 
And do they look different than our words or the story that we tell or the religion that we proclaim or the worship that is external to us? Does it differ? Is it the same? What does our practices, our actions reveal about our hearts? And if you look at that and you're like reflecting and you're like, oh no, my practices reveal something really different about my heart. Well, the good news of that question is that it works in the inverse. What practices will shape a different heart? What practices help us curate love? What practices help us curate new desires? What practices lead us into some other way of being? One of those practices is the table, which is why every single week we gather around it. It's a practice that meets us with the love of Jesus, this kind of openness of Jesus that allows us to get what it is we want, but always provides us a space at his table. But what practices in your own life, what practices in your own rhythms, what practices in your own habits, what do they curate? What kind of desires do they shape? So, Missy, would you hold that question? What do your practices reveal about your desires? And what practices will shape your desires? Would you hold that question? Or those two questions. As we today try to practice a set of things that would lead us towards Jesus, practicing the table, practicing worship and prayer. Those are all meant to orient us, to guide us, to lead us into Jesus. But just this space is not enough for that to be true. So would you bring those questions to the table and then would they send you from this place? Send you into the world with a new set of questions. What can I curate differently? Let me see, let me pray. And we'll continue worshiping.